Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you can be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. The University of North Carolina Board of Governors was created in 1971 and charged with the responsibility of governing or overseeing the work of the state's 17 public higher education institutions. Among the institutions that are governed by the board are North Carolina Central University, UNC at Chapel Hill, uh, North Carolina A&T, Winston-Salem State, uh, North Carolina State, UNC uh, Pembroke, and Fayetteville State. A major purpose of creating the board was to allow for the development of a comprehensive approach to higher education, which would allow each constituent institution to maximize its growth and development without having them to compete against each other for funding, educational missions, and influence. The 28 members of the board are appointed jointly by the North Carolina Senate and the House of Representatives. As of this year, the board membership has decreased to 24 members and has ex officio positions for the president of the Association of Student Governments and the UNC Faculty Assembly, both as non-voting members. Over the years, the UNC board has commanded considerable respect among those involved in higher education around the country. In recent years, however, the board has engendered considerable controversy as a, way, as a result of actions that it has taken, which appears to focus on painting a more conservative educational approach. Recent criticisms have focused on the board for its firing of Tom Ross, a highly respected uh, political leader and educator who served as president of the system, Margaret Spellins, who's the former president of the uh, UNC system who replaced Ross, Carol Folt, the most recent chancellor of UNC at Chapel Hill, and its termination of the litigation capacity of the UN Center for Civil Rights and the demise of the North Carolina Central University Institute of Civic Engagement. Tonight, we're going to talk about the work of the UNC Board of Governors. Joining us for this discussion are Professor David Green, who is the president of the UNC Faculty Assembly and is an ex-officio representative to the board, and Professor Kimberly Cogdale Graninger, the former chairperson of the NCCU Faculty Senate and presently serving as the secretary of the Faculty Assembly. So first of all, we want to thank both of you for joining us uh, this evening for this discussion. Thank you, Professor Joyner. I appreciate being here. Thank you. Well, first of all, uh, Professor Green, can you tell our audience something about your role as uh, the uh, president of the uh, UNC Faculty Senate. So um, the UNC Faculty Assembly comprises, as Professor Joyner pointed out, of the 17 campuses. Each campus has delegates, and the number of delegates is based on the size of the campus. So for instance, North Carolina Central has three delegates, um, Chapel Hill has five, Winston-Salem State has three, um, Elizabeth City has two. 
So the body is made up of faculty delegates from each of the 17 campuses. Uh, we meet six times an academic year. Um, and as you pointed out, we serve in an advisory role to the president of the system, who is presently um, Dr. Bill Roper, um, as well as we provide uh, advice to the Board of Governors. And I, I sit on a few um, committees ex officio on the ed, ed planning committee, as well as personnel um, and tenure. Um, so what we do as the Board of Governors is looking at policies to affect the system. Uh, we meet as a body, and uh, we make sure we have input on, that, on those policies, particularly how it's going to impact each of the individual campuses um, and how it's going to impact our students and make sure that the policies do not interfere with the mission of each um, institution uh, and make sure that it's best for our students and make sure it's, it serves the system well and make sure that each individual campus uh, can accomplish its goal um, providing best education for students. Um, you know, we try to make sure that politics is not in the decision. Uh, they are academicians. Uh, our role is to bring data to the board attention, to make sure the board appreciates if you institute this particular policy, this is the impact that it's going to have on a particular campus. So it's particularly important that we stay engaged, uh, that we continue to sit at the table and make sure that the decisions are informed decisions. Uh, and to the extent that we disagree, we respectfully disagree, and we speak up, we submit memos, we submit white papers to make sure that the faculty input is always part of the discussion. And then when the board is making the decisions or in the president's office is making the decisions, it's based on informed um, information. Well, w with respect to the uh, policy uh, decisions that uh, you articulate on behalf of the uh, faculty uh, assembly, how are they uh, developed? So some of the things that the Board of Governors are working on are driven by legislators. So the legislators, for instance, um, about two years ago had a First Amendment or free speech um, state legislation, um, and it directed the Board of Governors to kind of put a policy behind that. Um, both myself and Professor Cogdell Granger uh, was part of the working group that sat down with the system office to make sure that the policy wasn't intrusive. It did not interfere with freedom of speech. So sometimes the policies coming from um, the legislators. Um, some policies are driven by the board's strategic plans. Every five to seven years, the board will come up with a strategic plan. In order to carry out the objective of the strategic plan, the board will come up with policy. So one of the more recent policies that they have is to not allow um, the program to have any more than 120 credit hours unless there's a reason to do so. So it's one thing you have an engineering program and you need more than 120 credit hours. The hope there is that if no student had to take more than 120 credit hours, that we're going to increase graduation rate um, and going to maintain students. So sometimes policies are driven by the board strategic plans based on what the board thinks um, the direction of the higher education in North Carolina should be going. Yeah, what I'm, I, I guess we're kind of referring to the positions that the uh, faculty assembly take with respect uh, to, to the actions that uh, the board, board. Uh, is considering or that the board is taking. So I, I guess it, so. Uh, so I guess it depends on what the policy um, drive is going to be. Um, each of the 17 campuses has its own faculty senate. Um, as you pointed out, Professor uh, Cogdell Granger is a former chair of NCCU's uh, faculty senate. So to the extent that it's going to impact each campus potentially different, um, one of the first things that we do often is we'll bring it back to your campus, bring it back to your body as to what you think the impact of this particular policy would be, and then that, that body will bring it back to the, to the faculty assembly's attention 
and then we ultimately decide well what's best what should you know what should the recommendation should the board be what the recommendation should the system office be okay uh, professor uh, Cogdell Granger uh, you you were you served as the uh, chair of the uh, NCCU faculty Senate for uh, for several years can you talk to our audience about the uh, the relationship uh, that exists between the faculty Senate and the uh, faculty assembly uh, that uh, Professor Green uh, 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 serves as chair of? Sure. Um, the great thing about uh, both organizations, the assembly and the Senate, is that it's part of a larger network. And so it, it's kind of a web that goes all the way down to the individual faculty member and all the way up to uh, the Board of Governors. So as a faculty Senate chair, um, each department in a university, sometimes they're called faculty councils, ours is called faculty Senate, each department at the university has representatives, and then you have your uh, monthly meetings. And so it's a way to disseminate information quickly across the uh, across the campus and so you get information coming from the Senate down to all the different departments but then you also are able to carry information from the Senate to the faculty assembly and so if there's an issue on a campus and you may want to find out whether that is an issue on other campuses when you go to the assembly usually we have a separate meeting for faculty Senate chairs um, as a part of the faculty assembly meeting and you can say has anybody else seen this issue or how did you respond to this particular situation and so you get a chance to get some instant feedback about what's happening all across the system and you really learn the inner workings of, of your own campus and also see a lot about what's happening at other campuses. All right now the you, you serve now as the uh, secretary of the uh, faculty uh, assembly. Yes. Uh, and uh, you have I guess engaged in a lot of the give and take as it relates to uh, some of the controversial issues uh, that the uh, that the uh, board of governors have taken in, uh, in 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 recent years, can you talk about the differences between the board now and the board prior to 20, uh, 2014, 2015? Well. Um I can talk about our interaction with the board. I think that would be a better place to start. And I think um, one of the things that I would really credit uh, Professor Green with is that he has really worked to try to bridge some of the gaps. You know, a lot of times you see all of the information about the friction, the points of friction. And, and we used to have a lot of um, sort of um, things in the media or in the newspaper about how different faculty members felt about one thing or another. And so I think at least in the last last year, we have really tried to reach out and find more areas of agreement. And I think that even though there may be some polarization, um, we can make some more progress because we've been able to find areas of agreement, for example, the minimum admissions uh, program. Um, you know, as you know, North Carolina has uh, moved um, in different directions in, in those last uh, few years as well. And so you have different demographics of people who are very vocal. And so I think that um, not just within the faculty assembly, but just in the state as a whole, you see a lot of um, different voices that are, are really being highlighted now that you didn't see before. And I think that there's some activism that's been going on um, that... Um, is 
perhaps a reason for pause, um, you know, in, from the from the uh, Board of Governors level. Um, and I think that one of the great things is that the Faculty Assembly has this representative, um, who is Professor Green, the chair of the Faculty Assembly, to really be able to bring the voice of the campuses. Now, it doesn't mean that they will take our, you know, they will take our advice, but at least we are at the table to, to give another perspective that they may be a little disconnected from the campuses. And so they may not actually know the impact of some of the policies, because from the Hill, it might seem like this is a really good idea, but on the ground, you you know, there are some logistics that, that the people who are making some of those decisions might not know about. So, Professor Green, uh, I want to have us flesh out a little bit what, what uh, Professor Cocteau-Granger has said, but I, I want to ask you, wh- why did you decide to pursue that position? Because um, as uh, Professor Cocktail mentioned, I mean, it, it, as far as if we were just to kind of look at the news, it doesn't appear, if you're on the outside, to be um, a particularly um, well-functioning body. And, and you kind of stepped into um, that position. Great question. Um, <laughs> um, I think the reality is that, you know, one of the reasons that I did it is because it is important to take the politics out. You know, we're talking about the number of students throughout the state who are coming to our, each of our institutions for education. Um, and it was important to me that when policies and decisions are being made, that we're looking at the campuses who historically have not had as loud of a voice. You know, one of the things I always want to make sure is that we don't have the members of the Board of Governors looking at something that happened at, on Chapel Hill's campus, looked at something that happened at North Carolina State's campus, um, putting a, uh, a policy in place, but not paying attention to, well, what impact is that going to have on Elizabeth City State? What impact is that going to have on UNC Pembroke and their um, demographics and students that they attract? Um, and I wanted to make sure, based on my experiences as an African-American male, as a law professor, um, uh, as a person who's taken advantage of um, educational programs that were designed to increase access, that there was someone regularly at the table um, expressing that. Um, one of the things I always you know, do when I see that the board is considering a policy, uh, you know, my reaction is to sit back and say, what system staff person is going to be working on that policy? And who's the Board of Governors member that I need to talk to? Um, because what I don't want to happen is to have a policy in written form and have people tweak. You know, my objective is to be part of the conversation early on because there was some policies about seven to eight years ago with respect to minimum emissions that did hurt Elizabeth City. And Elizabeth City State is still trying to recover from the minimum emissions requirements that did not allow them more flexibility in bringing strong students. I want to make sure stuff like that doesn't happen again, that I want to be at the table and say, hold on, if your objective is to have this policy in place to respond to something at Chapel Hill, there's a way of doing that by addressing that problem, but not necessarily having a negative impact on other schools who don't necessarily always have the same level of voice. So to me, it was a particular point at this point in my career and, and where I'm at and what I'm trying to accomplish to have someone uh, be at the table who's regularly raising those issues, regularly make sure access means access to everyone, African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, uh, lower income students, uh, students who have not historically had the opportunity and making sure that there are resources in place. If you're gonna say you have a target graduation rate, you have a target retention rate, 
well, what are the supporting resources that you need in place to make sure that happens? Do you have writing centers? Do you have wellness centers? Do you have academic support? Because we're bringing in talented young people with additional support, they're gonna get to that same end. We have so many of our students who in order to get through their four years have to work. They have family obligations that some students don't have. So I wanna be at the table to say, all right, if we're gonna do that, let's make sure at Winston-Salem State that we have a program because their student demographics looks a certain way. Let's make sure that Penrith, that we have programs in place because of the demographics of those students. And you know, I'm not sure that that voice has always been heard loudly, and I wanted to be, make sure that I was at the table expressing those viewpoints. Now, my, my recollection is that you are the second African-American uh, to, uh, to serve in this capacity. Is that correct? Well, so as I look at the history, it looks like there was two prior to me, um, but it looks like they replaced someone's terms. So someone passed away in office, and during the second half of their term, it was a person um, from a historically black college. Someone else left the position. Um, so best I can tell, I might, in fact, be the first uh, to be elected for a full term. Right. Now, and, and I raise that, that question in light of, of the fact that in years past, there has been, uh, and this is my term, an overabundance of input mm-hmm. from uh, campuses like UNC Chapel Hill, uh, North Carolina State, East Carolina mm-hmm. uh, University. Uh, why is it important that there be the voice of uh, one an African American uh, mm. uh, before the uh, board, and particularly uh, representatives from an HBCU uh, of the 17 campuses or uh, system that we have as a part of the system? Well, it's to make sure that people appreciate that the 17 campuses does, in fact, include five HBCUs. It also includes University of Cal- uh, uh, Carolina at Penrith, and that the demographics and needs are, uh, are, are, are different from those campuses. Um, and I don't think that's always historically been the case, um, that sometimes with respect to interact with members of the Board of Governors, it's actually an education center. They don't necessarily know what's going on at North Carolina Central University because the media is not paying attention. They'll let there be an incident on Chapel Hill's campus, it's on the front page the next day. Um, There are some great things that we're doing here at North Carolina Central. We have some great and talented students. There's a great history of our alumni base here. Uh, We have such a huge impact of the demographics in North Carolina and around the country. And it's extremely important that when you talk about the UNC system, that that is part of the story as well. Well, we're going to have to take a quick break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking about the UNC system, and we've been talking with Professor Green, who is chair of the Faculty Assembly and also professor of law at NCCU School of Law, and Professor Cogdell Granger, who is also a professor at NCCU School of Law past president of the NCCU Faculty Senate and currently serving as secretary of the Faculty Assembly. We're going to take a quick break, but we hope you'll stay with us. We'll be right back. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. 
NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for being with us and staying with us as we uh, continue this, this discussion about the uh, UNC uh, Board of Governors, a topic that often uh, we don't uh, discuss uh, and uh, one that is very important because it uh, controls uh, our university uh, system uh, in place since 1971. Uh, it uh, has uh, within its uh, board, uh, broad ambit uh, control of 17 institutions, uh, six of whom are minorities when you include uh, UNC uh, Pembroke. Uh, and we have uh, David Green, who is the uh, chair of the uh, faculty assembly, UNC faculty assembly, and uh, Kimberly Cogdale Granger, uh, who is the secretary of the uh, faculty uh, assembly, and we are very thankful for them uh, for uh, for being here. Want to talk about a couple of specific uh, issues that uh, that has come before the board. And uh, David, you uh, mentioned this uh, earlier in a comment that you made that had to do with the uh, free speech uh, proposal uh, that the uh, board of governor has governors has. Uh, enacted. Can you explain to our audience exactly what what that is? So the the Board of Governors actually was directed to come up with policies um, that came from the um, North Carolina legislators. Um, And it was designed to legislate and codify through policies um, procedures with free speech. Um, it seems to me, and I'm just inferring from what I felt the legislative intent was, is that it was an effort to kind of have, from their perspective, balanced dialogue. Um, there's a perception from legislators and certain members of the Board of Governors that university campuses have too, too liberal um, ideology and discussion. They want to make sure that the discussion was more balanced, and they want to make sure that conservative viewpoints were not being blocked. Um, and they want to make sure that when people came to speak, um, that the speeches wasn't disruptive. Um, so while, in fact, the term of the legislation was called free speech, um, in fact, um, there are many who say it wasn't necessarily designed to further free speech. Um, it was designed to make sure that certain viewpoints were being held. Um, and then it did not allow campus to say, you have a particular viewpoint um, and, you know, we're not going to invite you to speak on campus. So if you had an ultra-conservative group um, that the students would say, well, we don't want that person necessarily to speak on our campus, the legislation said, no, you have to have a platform and form in place. Um, and if you want to kind of determine um, 
where they can speak, that's one thing, but they want to make sure they wanted to encourage um, conservative think um, as part of the discussion as well. Um, so when the legislation came, one of the things Professor Cogdell Granger and I did was we looked at the legislation and said, well, while we can't control or change the, the letter of the law, we can make sure that the policy stays within the limited uh, confinements of what the legislators want. Um, and we work closely with the legal counsel in the system office. We also work closely with members of the Board of Governors on a subcommittee um, who actually were in agreement um, that we want to kind of minimize. Um, there was stuff going on in Wisconsin and other parts of the country uh, where this legislation really came from. Um, and their um, kind of policy dictated certain penalties. Um, and we wanted to make sure that wasn't the case because we were concerned that mandatory penalties would actually chill free speech. Um, and we were able to kind of negotiate the policy language um, that did not have, in fact, mandatory policies, uh, at least mandatory penalties with respect to uh, individuals' actions. So, yeah. Professor Cockdale, um, so Professor Green mentioned that the two of you had an opportunity in your roles as uh, officers of the faculty assembly to, you know, kind of talk about and flesh out policy positions of the faculty. And I wanted to ask you the same question as well. What what prompted you to decide to serve in this capacity, knowing that you had just finished up a, a term as chair of the uh, faculty senate here at NCCU? I really believe that things happen for a reason. And um, I had the opportunity to serve as the faculty senate chair here at North Carolina Central, and I learned so much about both the workings of the university and also the system. And so by sort of being involved as a, as a representative or a delegate from Central, if you're the faculty senate chair, you're also a delegate to the assembly, then I attended the faculty assembly meetings um, and, and just realized, one, there's a real lack of diversity um, at the assembly level, and, and I feel like my voice is important. And I feel like um, when I saw that and I saw that there was an opportunity for me to serve more and, and to go further, then I really wanted to do that because I think that oftentimes people do want to hear different perspectives, but there has to be someone at the table to provide them. The, and, and, I'm, and I'm going directing this to, to both of you, and, and this has to do with this balancing uh, the notion that there is an over-liberalization of the uh, educational offerings at the uh, institutions of, uh, of higher education, uh, and that uh, some of the present members of the uh, board are really former legislators who, in fact, raised those issues in the uh, legislature, uh, and then for one reason or another, uh, left the uh, legislature and were were immediately appointed uh, to the uh, to the board of, of of governors. Is is it your sense that education uh, that we have in the UNC uh, system is uh, highly liberal in its uh, offering, such that there needs to be this conservative balancing uh, that's being articulated by some members of the board? Well, first, I'd make a distinction between faculty scholarship and faculty teaching, and I don't think the Board of Governors uh, do that. So they will hear a presentation by a faculty member or they'll read an article, and they automatically assume that that's translated into what the professor does in a classroom. Um, you know, one of the things I always say to members of the Board of Governors when that issue was raised is that 
I'm not effective or none of my colleagues are effective as professors if we don't give the students both sides. Uh, We are preparing future leaders. We are preparing uh, young folks to go out to the industry. If I did not provide both sides, then I'm not doing a good job uh, of doing that. So I think there's an assumption that people are making is when you're presenting uh, material in the classroom setting, you're presenting it with a slant uh, and you're trying to get the students to think a certain way. Um, and you know, my perspective is, well, that's not really accurate. Um, that's not effective. Uh, ironically, when they brought uh, a conservative professor from Princeton to do a presentation bef- um, before um, the Board of Governors, and he talked about um, some of his work with Cornell West and some of the classes that they did together, what I heard was effective teaching, that what they were presenting to the students was both viewpoints to make sure the students understood what was driving um, U.S. policy, what was driving viewpoint, um, so they said, and for the board, members of the Board of Governors to say, well, this is what we need, and, and I think there was a failure for them to realize, well, this is what we have. Uh, there's a process for evaluating professors, um, that we want to make sure what's going on in the classroom is actually best served. Um, so I think it's actually an assumption that the Board of Governors make that's an incorrect assumption and that the Board does not separate what someone does in his or her scholarship as opposed to how someone uh, effectively teaches. And I would say, too, that um, faculty members are here to support students. And if you look at the student organizations, you'll note that there are young Republican organizations. There is the Constitutional Law Society or the Federalist Society on many campuses, and all of these organizations have faculty uh, advisors. And so there's there's definitely some some communication with fa- from faculty members for all different demographics of students with all different viewpoints. And so I think that, you know, for faculty members, you know, it's our goal to further the interests of our students and to try to support them in, in what they're doing. And I think sometimes that get lo- gets lost, too. And, you know, that kind of raises the question of how the Board of Governors, um, how those members are selected. And mm-hmm. so we've got the faculty input and then we've got, you know, the, the board. Can you talk about how that group is selected? Um, well, as Professor Joyner pointed out, it is legislative appointments. So half of the appointment comes from um, the House of Representatives from the state level, and the other half comes from the Senate. While I've had a great working relationship with the members of the Board of Governors, um, their experience in higher education has different levels. Um, that's why we always have to respectively educate. Um, and we also have to respectively uh, remind them that we are the professionals. Uh, faculty are, are made up with folks with the most advanced degrees, PhDs, JDs, um, in addition to masters. Um, this is what we do as part of our profession, and that the board has at its disposal, as does the president, some of the best talent in the country to help um, the board make the best decisions. Um, they're not selected because of their uh, their. Um, educational background in higher education. And no one looked at them and said, oh, this person was a former chancellor, this person was a provost, mm-hmm. this person would be a good member for the Board of Governors. Um, the appointments are political, and we, and we recognize that. And our job is to make sure that it does not interfere with policies that ultimately are not going to be best for students. So we're, we're subtle, we're respectful, um, but we take our roles extremely serious. Um, you know, this is not a passing uh, kind of interest. And uh, I'm now in my 20th year as a faculty member at North Carolina Central. Um, I means you old. Yes, I served four years as an associate dean. Uh, I've and I've served on site visits. Uh, I consider myself an expert in higher education. 
Um, and when I sit at the table with the Board of Governors, all due respect to your appointment, but I'm the expert. And uh, in my role, I take very seriously and respectfully having conversations with them to fill in the gaps. So I, th I think that's important because I do think we recognize the appointments are political, not necessarily ed educationally based. And I think um, I think there's another thing that's happened in recent years. I think historically we saw more members of the Board of Governors who had actually attended um, universities in the UNC system. And I think there's been a slight movement away from that. And I think we, we lose a little something when we have, and, and certainly we should have people, you know, everybody doesn't have to go to one of our schools, but there's an allegiance. There's a a connection. There's a, an experience that you draw from whatever school you came from. And so it allows you to, to have this particular perspective about the system as a whole that I think you lose a little bit when the board looks differently. And that's different than the than the mm -hmm. political piece, but just kind of this, this connection that I think we have to work to create because mm -hmm. it's not sort of inherent because of the, the experiences that they've individually had. But there's also a uh, declining uh, participation of uh, people of color uh, as well uh, on the board. I, I know that for years uh, there were efforts to make to ensure that there was a representative number of uh, people of color. And in fact, for a period of time, the uh, enabling legislation mandated that there be a uh, specific number of, uh, of African-Americans uh, on, on the board that was uh, ruled to be uh, unconstitutional uh, at, uh, at some point. But can you talk about what you perceive as the uh, impact of this uh, declining participation uh, by uh, people of color on the uh, board itself? I mean, that's a concern. It's a big concern. Um, as we saw that legislators uh, just recently made its reappointment. Um, so at one point there were four African Americans um, on, on, on the board. We're now down to two. So that the board went from 28 to 24. Uh, we only have two. Uh, we only have one who actually attended uh, historically black college, um, who actually attended NCCU. Um, at the Board of Governors meeting, uh, two members of the Board of Governors actually pointed that out. Um, and it is obvious that when you walk into the room and you see the Board of Governors meeting, um, you see the lack of the diversity. You see a body that's supposed to be making decisions on behalf of 17 campuses, and the people sitting around the table don't represent the diversity of the campuses. So in all due respect to the board, I think it puts the board at a disadvantage because they don't have everyone and they don't have enough people at the table that can have all the perspectives that you need to represent the 17 bodies. I think the board recognizes that that is a problem that they have because we don't only see it just at the Board of Governors, we also see it at the Board of Trustees at respect to each of the 17 campuses. There's also a lack of the diversity there. And so that's, yeah, and that's a problem. I, I mean, Professor Cogdell Green is right. Even at the system office, there's a lack of diversity of senior leadership, and that is a major problem, and that the board and the system office will not be as effective if they don't address that immediately. Well, I guess, and, and I guess the importance of, of that uh, is probably highlighted by the recent controversy uh, dealing with the Confederate monuments and statues at, uh, at UNC uh, Chapel Hill uh, and how the uh, board has positioned themselves uh, to respond to, uh, to that crisis. Now, what kind of input has the uh, faculty assembly provided to uh, the board with respect to that conflict or that controversy uh, that's, uh, that's there? 
you know, from my perspective as the chair of the faculty assembly, what I requested directly of the chair of the Board of Governors, who I have a uh, effective working relationship. I have his cell number, he has mine. Um, from my perspective, as decisions were being made, I wanted to make sure that there was a diversity of viewpoint at the table, and I regularly called the chair and said, I want faculty representation at your next committee meeting as you're discussing what needs to be done. So when the issue came up, I want to say, I guess, around last May, um, I called the chair of the Board of Governors. I requested that he invite the chair of the faculty council, and that's what they call it at Chapel Hills campus. They call their faculty senate faculty council. I asked that she be at the table, be part of the discussion, um, and he quickly made sure that that happened. Um, the issue has not been fully put to rest. The board is still deliberating as to the final resolutions. I again asked the chair of the Board of Governors to make sure as he moved forward, as the body moved forward, uh, there's an ad hoc group of faculty at Chapel Hill's campus. I ask that those members be part of the discussion. So one of my biggest roles, and I thought the appropriate role of the faculty assembly, was kind of work behind the scenes as the decisions being made, making sure there was diverse um, viewpoints. Um, I, I looked at it in part as just a particular incident on Chapel Hill's campus, um, not necessarily a system-wide issue, but to the extent that the Board of Governors was involved, we wanted to make sure that shared governance included student input, staff input, and faculty input. Um, and we continue to push for that uh, whenever any incident, even, even though it's on any individual campus, if it potentially affects system-wide perceptions, that shared governance include the voice of all the relevant constituents. And you know that that um, I'm I'm happy to hear that you were able to ensure that there was faculty representation at, at that committee level. Um, both of you have been talking about making sure you have a seat at the table, and and of course the next question is is it making an impact? So I, so I know in that situation it did, but I I want to get your thoughts on. I mean it's great having that that voice. How much weight? Um, is the is the view of the faculty given and um, yeah what what are your thoughts about that well I would say that sometimes it's it's understated at on, on the on the back end but I think that um, because we can participate earlier on in the process the output that you get is really different than what the output is that you could have gotten you know so when we think about the free speech if we look at the draft legislation that happened in some of the other states ours you know, wasn't that, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and so, you know, certainly we weren't a part of the legislation, but even the implementation process of once the legislation was passed, what does it look like as a policy? And I think that we did have an impact on that. And I think we were able, we literally sat with the legislation and the proposed policy side by side, and we went through it line by line. And then we gave them a marked up copy and we said, hey, this isn't here. And so, you know, could this be changed to this? And can we refer you to a campus um, or other system level policy that already addresses this particular issue so it doesn't need to be in this new policy and so I think some of the work that we do is invisible because you don't see it you know but but it really has an impact on what what the output is and and I don't know if that if I've no. explained that clearly but yeah. no I definitely agree and the other example I would give would be the minimum emissions requirements um, so that's got about to be changed and one of the things that I, I wanted to make sure and I was so extremely proud of the NCCU representation because when they put together a working group one of the things that I wanted to make sure it happened is that Dr. Monica Leach, who uh, works here on this campus, was also at the table because I did not want the enrollment person just at Chapel Hill. 
Um, Dr. Lee sat at the, t- at the table. The members of the Board of Governors just stopped, and they just looked at her. And as she was providing information, um, that impacted. And I'm now confident that the minimum admission requirements moving forward is going to give each campus more flexibility. We won't have the detrimental effect that it had on campuses like Elizabeth City moving forward. So I'm hopeful that behind the scene pushing, networking, and lunches, and the politicking that all came with it um, allows us to be a voice before, as Professor Cogdell Granger said, before it's in draft form. So we don't even have the minimum admission requirement in draft form. Going forward, I think it's going to be much better. All right, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and want you to, uh, to stay with us. We're going to take our break uh, right now from our discussion about the uh, North Carolina University of North Carolina Board of, uh, of Governors uh, with uh, David Green and uh, Kim uh, Cardell Granger uh, to uh, explain some of the ins and outs of that, uh, of that process. So stay with us, and we'll be right back. The Center for Child and Family Health was founded in 1996 as a consortium of North Carolina Central University, Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the Durham community. Since that time, CCFH has become a national leader in research, training, and the treatment of childhood trauma. The mission of CCFH is to care for children and families affected by abuse, neglect, and other forms of trauma. Its professionals utilize a multidisciplinary, measurable approach to provide prevention services, treatment for children and families, professional training, and research related to childhood traumatic stress by uniquely integrating community-based practice and academic excellence. Its vision is that every child has the right to be loved, nurtured, and safe. As a center of excellence, CCFH strives to define the highest standards in the prevention and treatment of childhood trauma. In this way, stability and hope can be restored for children and their families. Information about the Center for Child and Family Health is at 919-419-3474 or the Center's website at www.ccfhnc.org. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Professor David Green, who is a professor of law at NCCU School of Law and chair of the UNC Faculty Assembly, and Professor Cogdell Granger, who is also a professor of law at NCCU and secretary of the UNC Faculty Assembly. Um, I wanted to just kind of just jump back just a little bit it, when we were talking about the the makeup of the Board of Governors um, and Professor Cocktail Granger when you were talking about it, you know the 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 way it looks and its representation and we've all kind of been touching and ball on that I couldn't help but it, it was kind of underscored in my mind that if the Board of Governors is selected by the General Assembly, all of the kind of voting issues that we have in terms of the makeup of the General Assembly, this is a byproduct of that as well. Um, And so, 
you know, when we're thinking about the representation, it's it's not um, obviously just the faculty or just those that are attending institutions of higher education. Mm -hmm. It's also about everyone in the entire state. So if you have a general assembly that doesn't represent the state um, and and the way the state has kind of voted collectively, um, and then you have a board of governors that doesn't represent you know the those students or those people who want to who are first generation college students so it all plays a role in it it goes back to that you know the the voting issues that we have in this state um, I don't know if the, the two of you can really uh, comment on that that was really kind of more of a, a, an observation um, on my part um, but I do want to ask you kind of along that vein is what what how does the community play a role in affecting policy, this kind of UNC system-wide policy? It's important that the community stays informed and then uh, reacts um, as advocates um, that, um, as you point out, um, it, uh, your observations are on point, uh, that we, we are concerned that the legislators don't represent the state um, and the state's diversity. We are concerned that the Board of Governors doesn't. Uh, the community needs to pay attention to policies, needs to pay attention to legislation. The community, they need to call their legislators. Um, and it's incumbent upon us as assembly members, as uh, part of the faculty assembly, members of the faculty senate on each individual campus, we play a role in educating. I always say that the faculty assembly has three roles. Uh, we advise the president and the system. Uh, we advocate on behalf of faculty, staff, and student, and then we educate all the relevant constituents. That is our responsibility to go in the community and educate. Um, that's why at times I don't do it frequently. Well, I will do letters to the editors, and I've done that multiple times, particularly when there's an issue that I think is important to the community and they need to be well-informed because it's going to impact their family members um, and their children and grandchildren. So I think it's extremely important to the community to pay attention uh, when it's pu open public meetings at every Board of Governors meeting, it's it, by legislation required to have an open public session. Uh, as they are reading about policies, as they have questions, as they have concerns, um, they should take that opportunity and express those concerns to the members of the Board of Governors. Well, you know, the, um, the term of offices uh, for the president of the um, Association of Student Governments uh, was from 2018 to 2019. Your, mm -hmm. your term is 2018 to 2019. I don't know how what the uh, uh, how often you are uh, elected. Uh, and I note just for our audience that the uh, president of the Association of Student Governments for the past term. Uh, was an African-American uh, who was president of the Student Government Association here at North Carolina Central, uh, which is uh, historic uh, uh, by itself. And then, uh, David, you are uh, on your way out. She just completed uh, her term. What does the, uh, the future hold in terms of this uh, involvement and input uh, by this people of color delegation uh, before the uh, before the Board of Governors? Well, uh, hopefully I think it bodes well. You know, the pleasure I have had as serving as chair, I work closely with Bailey Ann uh, Jaramba, um, who is the outgoing chair. Um, they had their meeting in January at North Carolina A&T. Um, she invited me down to speak. 
Um, one of the exciting things is, is that a lot of the student leadership at the 17 campuses was extremely diverse. Um, I saw a number of young African-American and Latino leaders um, at that body. Um, they recognized that my role as chair was historic. Uh, I got a number of emails from them mm -hmm. saying, I want to sit down and talk with you. Uh, I was blessed when I had to go to Boone, North Carolina, a couple of weeks ago. I got an email from a young man from Appalachia State, African-American male. He said, oh, I saw you in January. I wanted to know if I had the opportunity to sit down with you. Um, so the chancellor at Appalachia State, uh, when I was down there, made arrangements for me to sit down and have lunch with him. Um, I am confident that you know he sees me in the role that I have and says that he now wants to continue to do so. Um, so I think hopefully moving forward um, that we see that, that we see the importance of having African-Americans, Latino, Native Americans have a voice at the table, that young folks realize it's important that you have to articulate on behalf of yourself because no one else will, um, and then realize that it, you can have an effective voice. Um, so I say moving forward, particularly extremely historic with Ben Leanne Jaramba as the, the student uh, representative leader and then me in my role that I think it's now, it's not out of the ordinary. You know, I, you know the very first meeting, um, they were the member of the Board of Governors would just turn around and ask someone, who is that guy? <laughs> they don't ask that question anymore. <laughs> and Kimberly, your, your term ends as well uh, in 2019 as secretary of the, uh, of the board. And I know that they are, you know, the, at, the, at the faculty level, the same level of diversity isn't present as is uh, has been articulated by David at the uh, at the student uh, level. So, wh how do you, what do you see uh, in the uh, the years to come with respect to having that input, that effective voice? Uh, uh, and I know you don't have vote. <laughs> uh, having voice though is a, a, is a bigger thing than being a protester. Uh, so, uh, what what do you see ahead of us? I think it's going to be a challenge um, because I think that you have to have people in the pipeline in order to run for leadership positions. And I think that it's more challenging, uh, particularly at um, the majority serving institutions, um, for minority faculty members to be in positions to run for these roles because there are so many things that are pulling at their time. You know, we talk about emotional work and the things that are done outside of just our teaching and sometimes they become the uh, mentors for various demographics of students because they are one of few on their campuses. And so I think that first we have to get people in the pipeline, you know, just so that there would be someone um, in who would have an opportunity to run for for these particular um, positions. Um, I think a couple things that I wanted to mention, too, though, that we have to keep telling our stories. We have to keep making sure that people realize the importance of being in these roles. And even though you might say, well, I don't know what the impact is of the of the um, faculty assembly, I think by having this this radio program and, and being able to talk about it a little bit more, maybe we can explain, hey, we're, we are really making a difference. And it could be a lot different than, than it actually is. And so, but we have to be able to, to tell these stories and, and try to get, encourage people to uh, seek these opportunities. Um, so I was able to serve two terms um, as a faculty Senate chair and I termed out and I was able to serve two terms as a faculty assembly secretary and I'm terming out. We'll see if I, if I am able to run for something else or why I'm able, but whether I win my position or not, um, it's contested. So, you know, we'll see. Um, but I, I see myself definitely continuing to to serve in some capacity or another, whether it's with this organization or something else. 
Mm-hmm. So you are running for another position. I am. And, and are, do you feel comfortable sharing? I, I'm position? running for vice chair. Okay. Um, but, you know, as I said, uh, it's a toss up. <laughs> now, let me just uh, raise this, you know, because the, the, the board went through this uh, or developed this experiment. Uh, tuition experiment, I call it, uh, with uh, Elizabeth City State, uh, mm-hmm. UNC Pembroke, and uh, UNC and Western Carolina, Western, mm-hmm. uh, Carolina uh, where there was a huge reduction mm-hmm. in the uh, tuition uh, for the purpose of increasing uh, the uh, student population on those uh, uh, those campuses. Uh, has there been an assessment made yet of the uh, the success of uh, of that effort. So I think each of the three campuses are benefiting. I think they're happy with the opportunity, um, but they also recognize there are challenges um, because when you reduce tuition down to five hundred dollars to a semester, there is a economic you know shortfall. So you now need the legislators to make sure that they um, provide funds for that shortfall. Um, the other challenge is that you need to make sure you have the appropriate resources on campus, um, that you still have each of those campuses who have metrics they have to meet, graduation rate, retention rates. So if you have 300 more um, freshmen in your English classes, do you have the, the match with respect to the appropriate advising, the academic support? Um, and so that has to be thought out. So, you know, I think initially it's having a positive impact on enrollment, um, but there's still other challenges associated with it that hasn't been as well thought out. Um, so I think each of those campuses are going through growing pains. Um, one of the values, again, I have as chair of the faculty assembly that I do do campus visits. So I actually went to Western Carolina's campus and met with their faculty um, as to some of the issues that they're dealing with. Uh, a month ago, I went down to Penworth's campus um, to meet with that faculty, and then in November, actually, we'll be going down to Elizabeth City. Um, so the faculty are addressing that. So while they're pleased with the increased enrollment, um, they do have concerns. Um, they want to make sure that there are appropriate instructional resources and uh, student services support to make sure. So whether or not it will be successful, uh, we'll still have to see. It's a work in progress. Now, what about the uh, drain on uh, student population at other campuses with higher uh, tuitions? And uh, has that uh, been uh, negatively uh, impacted in any way? So we haven't seen that um, so far. So matter of fact, at the last Board of Governors meeting, that issue came up. Um, that Elizabeth City is one of the campuses who is really trying to kind of get control over its increased population to make sure it has resources. As part of that discussion, um, it, it was an additional discussion what impact this policy has on other campuses. Um, fortunately, that the committee that addresses that is the Board of Governors um, Educational and um, Planning Policy Committee that I sit on ex officio. Um, our chancellor here also sits on that committee ex officio. So that is something that's still being discussed, not only what the impact it has on the three campuses that have been identified at the NC Promises campuses, but what impact does it have on Fayetteville State, what impact it's having on Winston-Salem State, is it in fact drawing students who might have gone to Winston-Salem State and going someplace else. Uh, and that's something that we're going to have to look at the data. We have to be very careful and deliberate uh, about uh, to make sure that while 
three campuses maybe benefit, but not at the expense of the others. The good thing is that the chair of the board of, of the chair of the education planning committee she recognizes that, uh, and we've been having that conversation about how you best monitor that and how you get the data to make sure that it doesn't have a detrimental effect on the other campuses. Now, one of the things that uh, I see is that uh, at uh, North Carolina Central, there will be a commemoration service for the uh, renaming mm -hmm. of the uh, Shepherd's uh, administration uh, mm -hmm. building, uh, which uh, resulted from uh, an effort by students on this campus to mm -hmm. uh, uh, change the name of the administration mm -hmm. building, which honored a uh, one of the uh, uh, Confederate or segregationist uh, governors of the uh, of the state. Uh, are there similar issues developing on uh, other campuses in the system? Well, there are other campuses dealing with something similar, whether or not it's a building or a monument. Um, so even with respect to the Silent Sam um, issue, um, my perspective that we looked at it broader. Um, that not only did we look at Silent Sam on Chapel Hill's campus, we looked at are there other campuses who have buildings, monuments, statues um, that have a negative history um, that's impacting you know, students' perceived um, perception. Am I welcome on this campus if you're highlighting someone um, with this history? Um, so there are a couple of other campuses who do have very similar issues. Uh, we are hopeful that those other campuses resolve it the same way North Carolina Central resolved it. Um, that it resolved appropriately, make sure that the students are heard and that they're part of the decision, that the alum of each of the respective campuses are involved in the decision, uh, that it should be a campus-by-campus -campus decision to look at your buildings, your statues, your monuments, what statement are you making to students, what statements are you making to the community, and bring the appropriate people to the table and resolve it in a way that makes sure that all students feel welcome on each of the campuses. Okay. All right. We, we only have a few more minutes left, but I wanted to, uh, my hope is that this has um, ignited some interest on the part of faculty members, uh, particularly faculty members of color, women. Um, Kim, if we could start with you, what advice would you give to uh, you know, a faculty member who's interested in serving in a leadership role in this capacity? Don't be overwhelmed. I think one of the things that I realized when I became faculty senate chair was that there's so much more that you don't know as a faculty member about the inner workings of the institution and the system. And when you first get started, you think like, well, I don't know all the names of these people and all these different programs. And, you know, and so it's easy to get overwhelmed by all the people around you who seem to know everything about all of the different things. But I think that just by your participation, you learn. And, and the more you learn, the better prepared you are for leadership. And, and I agree with everything that uh, Professor Cogdell Granger said. That one of the things I would say is make sure you realize that your voice is crucial, uh, that this is a crucial time in history, in the country, in the state, um, that we are all busy. We do recognize that at uh, the, um, the historically black colleges in Pembroke, we play a larger role um, in how the students are work with students, our interaction with students. And I know we all have a lot on our plate. Um, but please find a time to be an advocate for your campus, for your students, for yourself, um, that your voice is crucial to the discussion. And as Professor Cogdell Granger pointed out, there is a dearth of diversity. I mean, you walk into the faculty assembly meetings, you sometimes think you walked into the wrong room. 
Um, so we need you. We need your voice, um, and it is crucial. Now, David, you this so you are you know chair of the faculty assembly, but mm-hmm. you had a path that led up to that point. Share mm-hmm. with us what how you got started and what led up to your position now. So actually, here maybe about seven eight years ago. Um, Someone recommended I be considered as a faculty delegate. So North Carolina Central had three delegates. I was one of the three uh, with um, Judith Rogers, Dr. Judith Rogers and Dr. George Wilson. He and I served together, uh, the three of us served together. Uh, The next thing you know, I walked out of the room and I came back. I was nominated to serve on the executive committee. And I served as the three delegate uh, representative for the executive committee. Uh, I served two years as secretary. Um, so I've been part of the body um, for about seven years. My term as chair of the faculty assembly is actually a two-year term. I served one year as chair-elect and then two, year, two years as chair, so my term will end um, June um, 30th, 2020. Um, but I served on a search um, leadership um, statement for the President Spelling selection. So I got in, I've been involved at kind of almost every level, at the delegate level, at the secretary of executive board, and then chair-elect. So um, now it's about eight years. Um, I will not be running again, but uh, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, by the time I became chair, I was ready. Okay. All right. Well, with that, we're going to have to end it because we are out of time. We'd like to thank you, Professor Green, who is chair of the UNC Faculty Assembly and professor of law at NCCU School of Law, and Professor Cogdell Granger, who is a law professor at NCCU and secretary of the UNC Faculty Assembly. And as always, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evenings with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.